Welcome to Spark Science. I'm your host, Regina Barber DeGraff, and I teach physics and astronomy at Western Washington University. In March 2020, we interviewed an infectious disease medical doctor to create a show to better inform our listeners about the new virus that was shutting down the world. We invited Dr. Vijay Bola back to our show to talk about how things have changed over the past year and how he thinks the pandemic is going to progress in the future. It's been one year since we've talked to Dr. Vijay Bola, infectious disease specialist. It was an awesome show. It was at the beginning of the pandemic, but I want to welcome Dr. Bola back to the show. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure to be back. Thank you for having me. A lot has happened in the last year. But I also want to introduce the co-host for today's show, Western Washington University physics student, editor for Spark Science for the last three years, Julia Thorpe. So thank you for being my co-host. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. For all you listeners, Julia is also going to edit this show. So this is really (laughs) Julia's show. Let's just start off with kind of helping the listeners um, what you do, Dr. Bola. What does an infectious disease specialist do? What are you doing right now? Kind of your background. So I'm an infectious disease doctor by training. I just finished my infectious diseases fellowship July of last year. And what I'm doing right now, I'm working right now more in a general medicine capacity because I was supposed to actually be in Botswana for these six months. But because of COVID-related reasons, <laughs> I find myself staying here stateside. One very good thing I was able to do, which was a very interesting for me, is assist with some of the consenting for the Novavax vaccines, which our hospital is one of those sites. So that was a very interesting way to be involved in this process. Um, wasn't very research-oriented, much more counseling patients as to side effects of the possible vaccines and what the process of a trial is. I think what was really fascinating is just how much things were changing over the such a moving target. In terms of what are infectious diseases physicians, it's primarily an inpatient, which means you work in the hospital and you see lots of consults. So any patients who have an infectious disease problem or sometimes they have patients have issues like fevers of undetermined origin, etc. They have pneumonias, infections with complex organisms or complex infections, you would get called to consult on these. In the world of COVID, you very commonly get consulted on whether someone needs antibiotics because you have an abnormal chest x-ray and you're not quite sure whether it's a bacterial infection or it's just COVID pneumonia, which doesn't require antibiotics. And you know, uncontrolled fever, early on in the course of the pandemic, we get lots of those before we even quite clear on whether COVID causes the systemic inflammatory response that we now see and we now understand quite clearly. So an infectious disease doctor has a very interesting life seeing strange infections. I remember when we when we talked last year, you were saying that like things could change at any minute. Like next week, the things I could be telling you could be totally wrong. So now that it's been a year, do you feel like as you are your every day in the hospital, do you think that the medical field has kind of gotten a hold on like understanding COVID-19 now? Or do you think like tomorrow crazy stuff is going to happen? Oh, the short answer, I hope you'll publish this tomorrow because everything can change in a minute. We're looking at a curve right now that's heading downwards, but that can easily sort of plateau or it can just really exponentially explode. I mean, the possibilities of what can happen, uh, this is, we're really at a junction where we're not quite clear on how things will play out. We're sort of opening up throughout the country a lot quicker than and in a manner that's probably not the safest, but we're really at a, at a real inflection point. We're really at a fork in the road where this thing can go can still go either way, can actually become worse than it was in the the thick of the pandemic, or we could just sort of resolve into a very nice summer. It's really hard to tell how this thing will be going at this point. 
So, Dr. Bola, you mentioned that socioeconomic status plays a strong role in how deadly a virus is, and we have sadly seen this in the last year. Can you help our listeners understand the issues related to this? Oh, this really fascinating question topic, and I think, if nothing else, I I hope that when this COVID has all been settled, that the socioeconomic factors that have been raised so prominently will become something that and that really pay more attention to because a very critical role in terms of health dynamics. You know, we if we look back a little bit, you know, back to the point of the, the Spanish flu, the pandemic, we did see back then, this is back in 1918, that poverty and low socioeconomic factors played a, a very severe role, a sincere role in, in mortality. So, for example, in India, there was something like a 40 times increased mortality at that time compared to Denmark, for example. And then during the HIV pandemic, they coined this term syndemic, which means a pandemic, infectious disease pandemic, superimposed upon what can be considered a pandemic of poverty, where we saw, especially in um, lower income nations, lack of healthcare access, lack of understanding, lack of education, lack of protective methods, that the HIV pandemic really exploded in particularly lower income countries. And the COVID pandemic is really following the same pattern and the pandemic is really appropriate to apply what we're seeing right now. In short, we're seeing approximately a two-fold increased risk within the United States in persons of Black, Asian American, and Native American origin. And so we really have to ask ourselves that question, like why is there this two times increased risk? And some studies have tried to tease this out Is it a native genetic factor or is there something social that comes in? And at least one study in New York sort of tried to tease out this very question. And it suggested that, for example, Black Americans, yes, there's a twice the death rate as, for example, white Americans. However, when you correct for the other factors such as more obesity, other poor health determinants, then it seemed as if it wasn't actually the Black race being a risk factor as much as Black race is a risk factor for many other poor health determinants, and therefore there's a higher mortality in terms of COVID. Now, the jury isn't out on this, but what is quite clear is that if you are a minority, you have a much higher risk of dying of COVID. Some of the issues is you also have a higher exposure. For example, if you have what we could traditionally consider a white-collar job, your jobs were more likely within it within the pandemic to be ones that you can do at home on a computer, whereas if you were in a service sector, which is traditionally lower economic groups, you tended to have to go out there, jump into public transportation at the beginning of the day, probably put your kids into daycare where they would have exposures, go to work in a service industry where you met a lot of people, may not have had much protective equipment, and then you came home to probably a more crowded household. There are Leonard ones mixed up in there. And so that combination of factors also, the risk, the, the exposure to the virus is one major factor, as well as the poor determinants of health. And so this is a very real phenomenon, and we are living in one of the, the, in the wealthiest nation that the world has ever seen. And so post-pandemic, these poor determinants of health will still be there. And so there are things that need to be addressed. And then next pandemic, there will be factors again. And we say next pandemic because there's a sort of frame of thought now that we need to think in as the inter-pandemic period. Not a matter of if there will be another pandemic, but when, because we know it will. It has since the, the dawn of you know, agrarian society, we've had pandemics. And so we, we really expect that these things will become just a part of our lives. And we have to be able to hunker down into those modes and we have to be prepared for when that time comes. This is Spark Science, and we're talking with Dr. Vijay Bola about the next pandemic. 
So following up on that question, what do you think that we can learn from this pandemic? And do you think that the next pandemic will go differently? And what can we do to ensure that it might go differently? Um, very good questions. And I think the most important thing to start with is that we're not really at the phase of a next pandemic yet because we're not out of this current pandemic. You know, Dr. Fauci said he was saying around August that we're still knee deep, waist deep in the, in the first pandemic. And that's pretty much where we're at. If we look at the curve, we had a peak and then we had another peak around July and then we really went up in, uh, you know, over the winter season. We, we do need to keep in mind that we have all these variants and with opening up, and with vaccine pressure, the vaccine now has mutation pressures because there are vaccines around. And so for the first time, they, they have a real incentive to multiply that this pandemic is not necessarily open. I think we could probably go back to that as a topic in itself. So we could talk about that a bit more. But I do want to answer your question in terms of preparedness for the next pandemic. So after SARS, which was, you know, originally around 2002, there's a 2004 paper. What have we learned from SARS? <laughs> and then there were reflections post-MERS, which occurred around 2012, about what did we do wrong? And now we're here again saying, oh, what did we do wrong? I think we got off the hook pretty easily with both SARS and MERS. COVID really, you know, sucker punched us because we, we were prepared. And sort of deliberate lack of preparedness, we just choose to not believe that something like this can happen. And I hope that the impetus, because of how severe COVID has affected the world, can really help us uh, prepare better in the future. Preparedness really, unfortunately, to a large extent, lies with the political directorates in each and every country. Because almost every nation, you know, within China, within England, within the US, we all sort of downplayed the pandemic. And because of doing that, we lost critical, critical times. China initially jailed its the initial physician who talked about it. Within England, there was a paper that came out of Oxford that really suggested this thing could be deadly. And that sort of pushed the political directorate there to really act and become a little bit more concerned about this in a real way. And uh, within the US, you know, the initial response was a sort of denial. So if we compare and contrast that, for example, to countries like Vietnam and Taiwan, which they got out of the pandemic and their economies grew almost, you know, within a couple, within a month or two, they sort of immediately went into defensive mode, sort of contact tracing, testing, very aggressively performed these measures. And they were actually able to take to take their pandemics down to smoldering within a matter of months. So to be honest, if you were to look in retrospect and say, how can we do this thing differently? If, for example, in the major powers, for example, in China, they reported quickly, the UK and the US really banded together and said, OK, let's do quick contact tracing, limitation of travelers widespread use of masks, decrease movement to some extent. Arguably, if we were to say we could have had a pattern of improvement just as well as, say, Vietnam and Taiwan, we could have been out of this thing potentially within a couple of months. And when I say out of it, not clearly out of it, but to a measure that really more closely approximates a cautious level. As we talk about how bad COVID is, we really have to mention it could have been much worse. MERS, for example, had a mortality approaching somewhere, let's say, eight or nine, whereas COVID-19 has a mortality somewhat variable, but let's say within the US, like 1.8. If we combine the mortality of MERS, a deadlier virus, with the ability to spread the way COVID-19 is, we could have a completely, completely different disaster on our hands. And so, yes, COVID-19 is bad, but this could have been a lot worse. I wanted to bring back to what you said earlier about studies that are out there 
figuring out why patients of color have such a high mor- a mortality rate. And, and you'd said like the jury's still out, you know, and, and I, I just wanted to kind of explain to our listeners what you mean by that, because there are all these other factors, the socioeconomic factors, access to health, the systemic racism that is in our country that makes it so that people can't have the access to health. But also there's also studies that show that people of color are not getting not just access to health, but once they actually get to the hospital, the treatment is different. Um, So there has been a historical mistrust of the medical community of the established in general by by minorities, especially within the the black community. I can't speak to exactly what are the statuses now. You know, what we have right now is a very heightened awareness within all medical systems. So I think it's difficult, it may be difficult to quantify right now the difference in how the healthcare system is perceived on the, on the side of a Black patient. But that is definitely something that I, you know, I can't say I've seen the data, but that is definitely some very, an area that we do need to look very closely at to really understand what are the actual biases within medical systems, number one where hospitals are located and how hospitals are funded in the areas, the geographical areas where minorities are located, definitely. And the, the, the way practitioners interpret symptoms of minorities and colored. So for example, there definitely have been studies in the past saying that physicians had a tendency to underplay the symptom, underappreciate the symptoms if they were coming from a minority or uh, black patients. And for example, black female patients, you know, there has been those suspicions and data to support that actually. So that is definitely something that we do need to look closely at. And uh, I can't say I know of the data or hand. Definitely, that is a very important aspect to take into consideration. Yeah, and, and I think that that's one thing that can come out of the pandemic. If, if we're being, like you said, in the medical community, vigilant about this, then after this pandemic is over, how does this affect medical treatment in the future? I wanted to let Julia ask a question about vaccines. So currently, children are not eligible for the vaccine. They have not gone through the trials for the vaccine. And I wanted to know how that may change the outlook of herd immunity that people are hoping for in these next few months. So the, you know, there was just a recently, Dr. Walensky was saying that it seems as if spread within children is not as aggressive. I think we don't understand that very well. If there is spread within children, just given the nature of children and how they congregate and they are, it's difficult to get kids to do anything. It's difficult <laughs> to get adults to follow these guidelines. So it'll be even harder in kids. So it'll be sort of trying to compare the, the, the rate of spread within children with the increased tendency of children to congregate and and getting close contact with each other. So within COVID-19, I'm not sure we appreciate exactly how efficiently it's spread within kids as compared to within adults, but that's important. But they certainly do have, there are a large reservoir of individuals that do have contact with their parents and their grandparents. And so they can potentially be reservoirs of spread. Where the data is on that, I'm not sure if we have an answer to it, but we do want to vaccinate everyone that we possibly can. They are starting to look at using one of the mRNA vaccines within the 12 to 17-year-old age group. And so as time goes by, when that data becomes available, then we'll be able to vaccinate children also, which would be a great thing. You want to get vaccinated as many people as you can. Really, in order to know whether a vaccine is effective or any study is effective, it has to be tested in the study population, sample population. Children are not just young adults, for example. So you want to see how it works within children and within 
pregnant woman, for example. So those are two blind spots that we have currently. The issue is that you don't really want to tr- run those trials initially because the, the adverse events are emotionally felt a lot more powerfully in kids and pregnant women, for example. In the case of pregnant women, if there are adverse events, those can potentially be really negative long-term adverse events. So data, generally speaking, in kids and pregnant women lags behind because you tend to have to see any intervention study in adults before that's expanded to kids and pregnant women. You're listening to Spark Science, and we're discussing COVID-19 vaccines with Dr. Vijay Bola. We want to let our listeners know that our next episode features a Western Washington University biologist who studies RNA. So there's more mRNA vaccine information coming your way. So our traditional viruses are typically you, one classic way that you do, they're different types, of course, but a classic way is to grow a virus, weaken it, and then give it to the person. Whereas the mRNA vaccines, you just need to be able to create the mRNA that codes the protein that you're interested in and then replicate that very rapidly. How quickly and how easy are those processes is something we really need to think about. So if you want to grow grow a live virus, it's a very long, complicated process. You have to grow it, for a, a, grow it to a critical mass, and I would take at least um, six weeks. Things have to be grown in eggs. We need to get a lot of chicken eggs. To the extent that these things are all, we don't think of how many chicken eggs do you need. And that, um, that's why if somebody's allergic to eggs, right, that there's an issue with this. Not necessarily. Well, how does that work? <laughs> the, the egg allergy is sort of overrated for the most part, because while you do use eggs to generate the virus, for the most part, you're not really giving the person egg proteins. You sort of extract the virus after that. It's not just, you know, you don't just throw it into a soup and hand someone the soup. You sort of grow it and you take out the air, the, the portions of the soup that you really want to sort of extract those. Grade quality to go through that process takes weeks and weeks on end to develop an evacuated process. And then when you have that mass of it, then it takes each batch will take a certain period of time to generate. So that's a very long process. You have to be lucky enough for an mRNA vaccine to know what site you need to produce. But if you've gone through that step and you know what site you need to, to produce, it's a lot quicker to do the, the reverse transcriptase, the, you know, the DNA polymerase reverse transcriptase reactions to get a really large quantity of that vaccine. So there's a huge time factor um, between ability to generate things in whether you're going the traditional vaccine route or you're going the uh, mRNA vaccine route. There's so many vaccines that we already have, very, very efficacious. We have companies all over the world that have the equipment and the infrastructure to produce the mRNA vaccines, so to produce a traditional vaccine, sorry, that there really isn't one a reason, and two, there really isn't a financial incentive to reinvent the wheel. So a lot of those traditional vaccines probably remain the way they are. Where the mRNA becomes really, really exciting is the ability to generate vaccines in pandemic situation. If you're able to get to the point that you know what you need to produce, then you could potentially have the infrastructure to ramp, ramp up those vaccines very quickly. And for example, as we're seeing right now, with the emergence of these SARS variants, if we can then now start tweaking so that we know if, for example, we figure out what proteins do we need to use for these variants, then we could start putting these things in together with the other standard vaccines and trying to really almost dance with the pandemic and dance with the variants, figure out which ones they are and produce the appropriate vaccines to them. 
Now, the other issues are in terms of storage and dissemination. The mRNA vaccines need to be stored at really low temperatures, like negative 70 Fahrenheit. So that's really difficult to do in different country settings. It really complicates the process. That cold chain is much different to most of the traditional vaccines, which can be stored at in a regular refrigerator. You know, especially in low-income settings, these things are very critical. So there are tremendous advantages to the classic method of just using a, an inactivated live virus. But so the Johnson & Johnson vaccine does not need to be refrigerated. Does that mean it's not an mRNA vaccine? Yes. Yeah, so Johnson & Johnson is not. It's, a, it's one of those that uses an adenovirus. The, the adenovirus is a virus that's very much present in humans. So we know it can spread in humans but it really doesn't do that much. So it's a fairly safe virus to use to infect people or use to use as a vehicle to give that genetic information or that deliver that protein that you want. And so the Johnson & Johnson is not an mRNA vaccine. And so it, no, it doesn't need that level of refrigeration. That's one of the, the really strong points to, to, to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. In addition, of course, the, the preliminary data being use of it as a one-time vaccine. You know, they're still investigating whether given booster vaccines and the duration of booster vaccines are important. But for now, if you can give one dose of a vaccine that can be kept in a regular refrigerator, then that really gives you an advantage in the pandemic setting. I have relatives that don't usually get the flu shot. I hope that now everyone, those same relatives are like clamoring for the vaccine now, the COVID-19 vaccine, that maybe this will start. I shouldn't say it's not maybe going to change everyone's minds about getting the flu shot, but I hope that number goes up after this. <laughs> I, I do hope so too, but the anti-vax movement is is really a powerful one. And, you know, I'll admit, like, you know, when you have people, because we, as human beings, we're emotionally, we're already averse to something that's new. And so if there's something that's new and there's any sort of fear-mongering, we're very susceptible to that fear-mongering. So even if it's a very small minority of patients and they speak on that, they, they use their loudspeaker a lot, then it makes you think twice, should I be doing this? You know, should I be using 5G technologies? It's like, you know, you wouldn't think about it before, but suddenly like raises questions. And that just naturally human behavior is to delay, to delay action. And, you know, they did one study in New York, like during the thick of the pandemic, this was around April, I believe, when the thick of the pandemic in New York. And, you know, something only about 60 to 70% of people said, yes, they would take the vaccine at that point in time. And so, as time goes by, the anti-vax movement is something that's going to become more and more powerful, unfortunately. And WHO actually leaves it as one of the top 10 threats to global health. And it may not sound like much, but vaccination really has been one of the greatest inventions, the, the greatest measures towards public health, like ever. And so if we start to chip away at that absolute foundation block of health that we have, we can lose real ground. And what becomes especially um, concerning is within the Black population, because there already is this distrust of the establishment, and because, of course, well, there's there's less access to care that's been, that's been pretty well documented, there's even more fear within the Black population. So, for example, in vaccine trials, you have this problem of, you know, your middle-aged, educated, classically Caucasian individuals who have read a lot about it want to be part of the vaccine trials. Whereas the, the minority populations, their sort of knee-jerk reaction is, oh, you guys want to use me as guinea pigs. And so that actually- Like, leaves... like the US has done in the past. It's, it's, a, it's a reasonable fear. It, it, it's a fear that's there for a very real reason. 
And so the, the vaccine uh, hesitancy really affects disproportionately those already marginalized populations. And they have devastating consequences. So, for example, in Minnesota, there were Ethiopian immigrants who were not vaccinating their kids. They were really well targeted by the anti-vax movement. And we had a measles outbreak in Minnesota, which is, is almost unheard of to really have these types of problems occurring in you know, the wealthiest nation ever. And so th these are real concerns that we have to keep in mind. And I do hope that your relatives choose to get vaccinated. This is Spark Science, and we're interviewing Dr. Vijay Bola, who is cautioning us against letting our guard down and to continue pandemic precautions. What I do want to make sure we mention is, you know, there's a lot of optimism now for lots of reasons. We have good reasons to be optimistic. No, no two ways about it. And we want to be out of this pandemic. Most importantly, you know, we want to believe what we want to happen. But right now, it's still a very concerning time in this pandemic. Some of the really concerning things that the variants that are coming out, mRNA vaccines seem to be effective in terms of mortality. So it has a mortality benefit within some of these variants. And so we think that we're covered. But what, what we have noted is that they are decreased antibody titers. So it seems to have enough antibody response to, to the variants for the most part. However, the fact is there's a decreased antibody response. And that's something that we need to keep in consideration. We don't understand the significance of this in the long term. And they are always possible that there will be slightly different variants. And so we do have variants. We have the South African variant, for example. We have the UK variant. The UK variant is considered a variant of concern. The two things that we're most concerned about is a combination of the ability to spread and the ability to kill. You need both of them to really have a pandemic. And at least some preliminary data has been suggesting that the UK variant could spread quicker and have an increased mortality rate, like a 1.6 point mortality rate. Now, these are preliminary data. We don't know what direction they're going to go in, but there's still is concern that we can have variants. And these variants, just like coronavirus, appeared in 2020 in the US and led to an outbreak, a new pandemic. The potential is that those things still can happen. And now the vaccine has what it, the, the virus, sorry, has something it did not have before. It has selection pressure. So the same way when you have a patient in the hospital who's getting antibiotics for a month, the bacteria, generally speaking, have the ability to mutate. You get resistance. It happens before your eyes, but it leaks the months. So we're going to see now the virus sort of being having this, this need to have these variants spread. So there is still a possibility that these variants lead to this pandemic propagating all over again and us having to go through the process of finding the right vaccination, vaccine components to add to vaccines that can then counter this issue. And so what you want to do to remove that selection pressure, you want to get vaccinations out as soon as you can. So what is happening now in the U.S. where you have states sort of just releasing their social distancing and use of masks really gives these viruses, gives this virus the opportunity have a nice environment to learn and grow. You have vaccinated and unvaccinated pa patients, it can bounce back and forth. So we still are at a very critical time. And our numbers are something like 60,000 cases per week average. And when this pandemic, the first surge we had was actually somewhere around 40,000. So we really are at a very bad point still. We're still looking at close to 1,000 deaths per day. You know, whereas in January, February of, uh, of last year, hundreds of deaths was like a critical, mind-blowing concept. But we've gotten so accustomed to having a peak of something like 3,300 deaths a day that we think, okay, 800 is not that bad. And so we're really in a phase where, again, our human nature is to want to relax. But if we do relax too quickly, 
we can have a brand new pandemic in our hands. So this is not over by a long shot. What I really want to emphasize is that this is not the time to really relax all measures. We still have to be cautious. I'd like to thank Dr. Bola for taking the time to speak with us about the COVID-19 pandemic. We hope that next year, Dr. Bola will get to pursue his dreams in international health. Spark Science is produced in collaboration with KMRE and Western Washington University. Today's episode was recorded in Bellingham, Washington, in my house, on my computer, during the great pandemic that's still going on as of April 2021. Our producers are Suzanne Blaze and myself, Regina Barbara DeGraff. Our audio engineers are Ariel Shiley, Julia Thorpe, and Zarek Coakley. If you missed any of our show, go to our website, sparksciencenow.com. And if there's a science idea you're curious about, send us a message on Twitter or Facebook at Spark Science Now. Thank you for listening to Spark Science.